Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MyFit Podcast, hosted by fitness coach, business owner, and CrossFit Games athlete, DJ Hillier. Physical fitness and podcasting are two of his life passions, and his goal is to train, educate, and inspire those who want to improve their general health. These podcasts are designed to help everyone, from the occasional gym member trying to improve their overall wellness, to the fitness enthusiast. The episodes capture a wide spectrum of topics, including training, coaching, nutrition, entrepreneurship, relationships, and mindset. Follow the show on Instagram at the MyFit Podcast and subscribe to his newsletter at djhillier.com. So let's get to it. Hey everybody, welcome back. This is DJ Hillier and you're listening to the MyFit Podcast. This week on the show, I chat with world's leading breath expert, Patrick McEwen. Patrick is an international best-selling author of The Oxygen Advantage and creator and master instructor of The Oxygen Advantage Technique. Over the past two decades, Patrick has trained thousands of people around the world to safely challenge their body and produce positive changes through breathing re-education. He teaches a new way to breathe combined with specific exercises designed to improve blood chemistry. The result is an increase of oxygen to flow all through the body systems, meaning greater endurance, strength, and power. McEwen has written eight books centered around breath work and also has a TED Talk titled Shut Your Mouth and Change Your Life. Today's episode gathers a wide array of breath topics for beginners to the most advanced athletes. I really think you guys are going to enjoy this show. I got a lot of feedback last year when I had Brian McKenzie on and talked about breathwork. And I think now more than ever, breathwork is starting to become super popularized. And personally, I think a lot of it has to do with um, masks, the mask mandate and making people wear masks and how we've now started to realize if there's a silver lining, I guess, in COVID, how important our breath is. And that's where we started today's conversation was what sort of challenges did Patrick have when getting into breath work and trying to popularize it. He mentioned that he's been doing this for almost 25 years and 25 years ago, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, even um, people were not very crazy and wanting to talk about breath work. So I wanted to understand what were some of the challenges he had early in his career. We then talked about the science behind nose breathing and why we all need to shut our mouth. Then we talked about the bolt score versus the breathlessness score. I think everybody that's listening to this should go try that out. It's much more difficult than it appears. And it also gives you direct feedback on where you are at with your breath. After that, we talked about the effects of improper breathing as a child. This is a big aha moment for me just because I could tell how passionate Patrick was when, when it was talking about how we can, if we really want to make waves and try to make changes in people's breath, it's really starting with kids uh, when they're developing um, and as they grow up. What are some things that we can do to help kids breathe more optimally? After that, we talked about uh, how to breathe less to feel stressed. This is kind of an oxymoron for me because most people want to breathe more, take in big breaths of air, have a lot of oxygen in their system when they take this big breath. And actually the idea is quite the opposite. We need to be thinking about how can we breathe less often and thus bring down our stress and anxiety levels. We then talked about breathing tips for pre, intra, and post-workout to have the most optimal workout and recovery. And we closed down the conversation by talking more about how we can do a better job at teaching our kids how to breathe 
optimally. Like I said, Patrick has uh, several books. I think he's written eight books uh, centered around breath. He has a brand new book coming out. It'll be available, I think, in August. It's called The Breath Cure. Um, I put that in the show notes if you guys are interested in hearing kind of his latest. Definitely check that out. He's got also got another interesting book about um, anxiety and how we can overcome anxiousness with breath control. Super interesting stuff. If you guys are interested, make sure to check him out. Um, go to his website, uh, www.oxygenadvantage.com. Dot com. If you guys enjoyed the show, be sure to leave a rating, review, and refer it to a friend. Those ratings and reviews really make my day and they help grow the show tremendously and continue to help me bring on more amazing guests like Patrick. Also, if you're looking for great workout gear, make sure to check out Legends and use code MIFIT215, M-I-F-I-T-215 to save 15%. All right, let's get our breath work dialed in and enjoy this episode with Patrick McEwen. Let's go. All right, Patrick McEwen, welcome to the MyFit Podcast, man. It's a pleasure to have you on the show today. We've had several breath coaches and elite performers on the show, and they always reference you when it comes to anything breath related. So I'm glad to finally have the man himself on the show today. So welcome. Good stuff. Yeah, that's great. Great to see um Breathing, getting some interest. So yeah, finally, after 20 years, it's all coming together. The, pi- the penny is finally dropping. It's all good. Why do you think that it's been, you know, you've been in the industry 20 years now and you've put out several books, several fantastic books about it. Why do you think now more than ever, breathwork is being talked about? Do you think, do you think it's because of kind of COVID and the masks and the stuff like that? Or why now more than ever has breathwork become popularized? I think because the people who who owned breathing very often didn't do a great job in getting it out there. It was very much seen as left of field, um, something that could not be adopted by mainstream individuals. There was no talk about what it can really do. It was surrounded by a lot of nonsense and hype. And, you know, so, yeah, so breathing is a bad rap. And, I have to say, it's when you start peeling away the layers and you're really getting down to it, it's a phenomenal modality. And I'm not just saying that because I work in the field, um, but I've seen the results over 20 years. And it changed my life 20 years ago. It changed my life 25 years ago. Um, and what I did back then was totally different to what was being talked about. So what was being talked about was not correct. I really feel that the, the people who inherited breathing did a bad job. What were some of the struggles that you had very early on? You said it was it was it was hard to kind of get in the industry and get people to understand the importance of it. What sort of challenges, if you look back in your career, did you have to try to popularize breathing? Well, you know, like I was approaching it from a health point of view. So I had, as a kid growing up in teenage years, I'd asthma, as many kids do. I'd sleep problems, as many kids do. I'd poor focus and concentration, high high stress levels, even though I wasn't wasn't anxious, didn't have panic disorder or anything like that, but a little bit highly strong, as many youngsters are. So I was approaching the health field and doctors didn't want to know about it. And even say, for example, if I was to contact the Asthma Society of Ireland, they were very resistant to knowing about the importance of nasal breathing or changing breathing patterns to help with asthma. Now, it's not that the science isn't there. The science is there because we're just talking about medical physiology here. You know, when we're say, talking about breathing through the nose, you, you harness the gas and nas- nasal nitric oxide. It helps to redistribute the blood throughout the lungs. It helps to open up the airways. It helps gas exchange from the lungs into the blood. 
the nose is the only mechanism whereby air is filtered. You know, so when you breathe through your nose, there's antiviral effects, antibacterial effects. You've got a moistening effect, a warming effect. All of this is just normal physiology, but there was resistance. And I suppose I made the decision back 20 years ago that I wanted to get it out into the hands of the general public. And I did that by writing a book back in 2003 called Asthma Free Naturally. And people started reading that with asthma. And then I wrote another one a year later called Close Your Mouth. And Close Your Mouth now is still sold today. So it kind of shows that, you know, the information doesn't go old. Now, the science has moved on, thankfully. And there is much more science in terms of heart rate variability, in terms of recovery, uh, in terms of sleep and the importance of nasal breathing during sleep. So it has moved on. I think James Nestor's book was really influential in putting, putting it on the map. Wim Hof Method was very much influential, that you needed a Hollywood marketing team to get it out there. And, you know, you needed a dynamic individual who was able to capture attention, and he just he did just that. Mm -hmm. So it's raised the boat. And in a way, it's been tremendous because it, it just shows people that, yes, there's some potential here. Mm -hmm. I think too, as well with, you know, we know that we can go a certain amount of time without food, certain amount of time without water, but you cannot go very long without air and breath. And so I think that's becoming more popular as well, along alongside with just mental health and being able to, you know, calm your anxiety. And with, you know, the stressful times the last year and a half has been with COVID, I think now more than ever, uh, breath work has become more popular because people are seeing the positive effects of it. Well, look at it this way. It, this isn't about, you know, the vast majority of people have a fairly relatively calm mind, you know, luckily. And of course, there is a cohort of people with anxiety and panic disorder and breathing exercises can help hugely. And but what about the people who just want to improve their focus and concentration mm -hmm. and attention span? And it's not about mindfulness because mindfulness doesn't change your respiratory physiology. I'll tell you, I was exhausted as a kid and a teenager. How on earth can you be mindful if you're exhausted? I had dysfunctional breathing patterns, breathing faster or chest. You cannot be mindful. Mindful is down the tracks. 2000 years ago, mindfulness was fine. People were living at different times. Today, we're living in, in, you know, completely different times. And respiratory physiology can be off and sleep can be impacted. If you want to enter flow states, let's look at getting deep sleep. And the elephant in the room there is nose breathing. And let's, let's look at getting really optimal and functional breathing patterns, not just focusing on the breath, not just paying attention to the breath, but actually changing the breath and changing the breath to improve, improve blood flow and oxygen delivery to the brain. And I suppose most people, when, you, when they hear, well, how can you improve your blood circulation? Well, the answer is that if you practice breathing less air, either during rest or physical exercise to the point that you feel air hunger, that in turn signifies the carbon dioxide is increased in the blood. And it's carbon dioxide that helps to open up your blood vessels. And not only that, the increase in carbon dioxide and the resultant drop to blood pH causes hemoglobin to release oxygen more readily to the tissues. So when people say, you know, if you want to oxygenate your body and there's more oxygen roaming throughout the body by breathing hard and breathing fast, it is the greatest load of crap that has ever been put out there. <laughs> it's like telling somebody who's eating a normal diet to start eating more food, you know, because 
many people, you see, the unfortunate thing about information is that if it's incorrect, it can cause harm. And I'll give you an example. I was going into an exam and I always use this example because I suppose there's just some things that kind of stand out at you. You remember them. I was doing an exam in my final years in university. This was back in 1996, 1997. I was pretty anxious going into the exam. Of course, my, my head was totally screwed up anyway. Racing mind, not able to concentrate, lousy sleep. All of these things matter. And, you know, you have kids trying to do well in exams and um, their sleep and breathing is holding them back. Well, anyway, three or four minutes before going into the exam hall, I took a walk. And during that walk, I took these full big breaths because that was always the information that we were told. Fill your lungs full of air. You hear it in studios. You hear it in media. You read it in television. You read it in newspapers. You see it in television. That's what I did. I walked into the exam hall completely lightheaded. Mm. Now, how should I have prepared for that? Number one is I should have been nasal breathing during sleep. And if I want to downregulate and if I want to upregulate, there's ways of hacking that state. But it's certainly not about taking these full big breaths. That was entirely the wrong thing to do. That's fascinating. I think uh, what I want to do is kind of start on breathing 101. And you had an awesome TED talk and also a book about, like you, you, like you mentioned, just being able to close your mouth. For the people that are new to this breathing world, they're turning this podcast on. They're just very uh, new to how to breathe optimally. Patrick, can you explain why we need to shut our mouth and why that's so crucial for at least just starting the breath uh, path, if you will? Well, number one, what does the mouth do in terms of breathing? No, nothing. It's a hole. That's all it is. So the mouth is a hole whereby air can come straight down your throat into the lungs. No functions. Absolutely no functions in terms of the breath. So with the mouth, you can speak, you can think, you can speak, you can eat, you can drink, etc. Uh, your nose is very much connected to the brain. So even with visuospatial awareness, can you imagine a fighter in a ring or a footballer on a field? And that individual is to be able to concentrate on the ball while reading what's going on around them. Mm. That's visuospatial awareness. Nasal breathing helps with that. We select our, our mates based on sniffing. Mm. And this is a, an evolutionary trait that's well documented in science. So how we select our partners is based on using the nose. Our sleep, if we have mouth breathing if we have a stuffy nose, which kind of inevitably results in mouth breathing because you're not going to breathe comfortably through the nose if it's stuffy, you are two to three times more likely to have poor sleep mm. and wake up feeling lousy. And nose breathing is engaging the diaphragm more than mouth breathing. Mouth breathing is more upper chest. And diaphragmatic breathing is important not just for respiration, but also for the emotions and for flow states, but also for stabilization of the spine. So you think of all of the instructors who are focusing on strengthening the core and improving the core and improving functional, improving functional movement, but uh, forgetting about functional breathing. You cannot have functional movement unless you have functional breathing. And functional breathing is in and out through the nose, driven by the diaphragm. It's silent during rest. It's regular. It's effortless. And there's a natural pause after exhalation. And there's only a few things about the nose, like even talk about COVID-19. Is the gas called nitric oxide, first identified in the exhaled breath of the human being in 1991, and it's antiviral. And, you know, there has been articles and papers written on this talking about could nasal nitric oxide mitigate the effects of COVID-19? And of course, we don't have the proof because 
nobody is going to bother studying this because there's no money to be made out of it. That's the reality of it. But there is an inhaler by a company called Sanotiz, and it has been used in scientific clinical trials for the treatment of COVID-19, and it has been shown to be efficacious. Mm. Now, the human nose, you can produce and you can increase the production of nasal nitric oxide by humming, by breath holding, by slow breathing. Think about the vagus nerve in terms of states, the nerve that's wandering throughout the human body, innervating all of the major organs. 80 to 90% of the information is being fed from the body up to the brain. And we can tap into this and we can stimulate the vagus nerve and we can stimulate it to secrete a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine which causes a slowing of the heart. And when the heart slows down, the brain is interpreting that the body is in a safe environment and the brain cells send signals accordingly. Mm. So our sleep, our focus, our concentration, our respiratory health. Think of the athlete who's training and training and training and training. How you breathe during training is not influenced by your training. How you breathe during training is influenced by how you breathe outside of your training. And if you have an athlete waking up with a dry mouth in the morning, and 50% of the adult population, 50% of the adult population are going to be mouth breathing during sleep. Wow. So with that, their sleep is impacted, but also their breathing is impacted. So an athlete, and you can see this with many athletes. If you look at athletes in press conferences and interviews and look at how are they breathing, are you breathing a little bit faster in upper chest? And if you see that, it's not a good sign because if you have an athlete who's breathing a little bit faster and upper chest during rest, that athlete is more likely to gas out too soon during physical exercise. Now, most athletes, they might think that they have lack of condition, that they're in poor condition, mm -hmm. and seldom, if ever, will they think about their breathing. Mm -hmm. Seldom, if ever, do they realize that the degree of breathlessness that you experience during your physical exercise is influenced by your everyday breathing patterns. And what's more, DJ, you can measure functional breathing patterns by simply measuring the boat score. So the bolt, which is, we call it the body oxygen level test. And this, you know, this exact breath hold was put to the test by a professor of physical therapy called Kyle Kiesel in 2018. He looked at 51 individuals. He looked at their breathing from a biochemical point of view, a biomechanical point of view, a psychophysiological point of view. His conclusion was, if your breath hold time, as described in the bolt score, if it's above 25 seconds, there is an 89% chance that dysfunctional breathing is not present. Mm. Now, I've seen professional athletes with a bolt score of 10 seconds, 12 seconds, and 15 seconds. I've seen MMA fighters with a bolt score of 12 and 13 seconds. And I'll tell you one thing. If I, was an MMA, if I was an MMA fighter, I would not get into a ring for love nor money if I had a bolt score of 12 or 13 seconds. Mm -hmm. Because you're more likely to gas out too soon. You're more likely that your legs will go, on, go from under you. Respiratory muscle fatigue, muscle fatigue, and even impaired concentration. So, you know, it's mental health states. It's, you know, there's so many, I, and I don't want to say this is a cure-all. It's not. It's nothing like that. But the breath is pretty powerful. It's about the depth to which we want to go with it. You know, do you want to look at from a biochemical point of view, from a biomechanical point of view, from a resonance frequency point of view, whether you are up-regulating or whether you are down-regulating. And that's where we need to go with the understanding of breathing. If people are teaching breathing exercise, they should know what the breathing exercise actually does, not just opinion. Mm -hmm. So is it, 
would it be common for somebody to be a very good nose breather during the day and then be the opposite while they sleep? And, and they're almost, it's almost a 50, 50 thing. Let's say you're up for 12 hours of the day. You do a really good job breathing through your nose, but then at night when you sleep, Patrick, is it possible that that same person could spend the next 12 hours breathing through their mouth? They could, they could. Now, if you are a very good nasal breather during the day, you're less likely to have the mouth open during sleep, but most certainly how many people, if you went to a CrossFit gym now, and I'm not sure if they're open in, in the United States, yeah, I'm open. assuming they're, they're yeah. getting back. Um, how many athletes in there, if there were 50 athletes in the gym, how many of them would be in there with their mouths open during physical exercise? Would you reckon it's about 49 of them? Yes, maybe 50? Really. Yes, all of them. Quite a few. So, you know, there's a time that there's an athlete there that's probably likely nasal breathing during rest, but forgetting about it even during the warm, the, uh, even during the lightest of physical exercise. Now, fair enough. When you're all out, when you're high intensity sprinting, um, mouth breathing is, is fine because you need to take in more air because there's too much of a buildup of carbon dioxide in, in the blood and the air hunger will be too intense. However, if you were to switch to nose breathing during low intensity and moderate intensity physical exercise and continuous changing, continuing that habit. Now, it's a bit tough at the start because you're feeling a greater air hunger. But after about five to six weeks, the air hunger starts to diminish because your tolerance to carbon dioxide is improving. So basically, the ventilatory response to CO2 reduces the more you do your physical exercise with the mouth closed. Now, nose breathing is also helping to protect the upper airways. So there's less trauma, there's less loss of moisture, less inflammation in the upper airways and the lower airways. As I said, nose breathing is targeting the diaphragm more directly. But I think the main thing is in terms of the blood gases, you're adding an extra load onto your body during training. And this is causing adaptations. So carbon dioxide is going to be higher in the blood with nasal breathing than mouth breathing because your nose is a smaller entry. Right. As a result, you don't breathe as much air. And because you don't breathe as much air, carbon dioxide increases in the lungs, which in turn increases in the blood. So you feel that increased air hunger. But this is the training effect. It's a bit of a push. Keep doing it. Now, it's not about doing physical exercise and pulling the air in and out. It's not about it shouldn't have to be forceful. It should feel a challenge, but nothing to the extreme. You know, and if you wanted to go a little bit easier, breathe in through your nose and breathe out through the mouth sure. to get more rid of more CO2. And if it was too much, uh, you switched mouth, mouth. But like the exact, I suppose the, the person's ability to do their physical exercise with the mouth closed is going to depend on a couple of factors. Number one is their bolt score. Mm -hmm. If you have an individual with a bolt score of 15 seconds, that person is going to be pretty taxed during physical exercise because if the bolt score is 15 seconds, your breathing during rest is a little bit faster. It's a little bit harder, more likely to be upper chest. And as a result, that disproportionate breathlessness will, will, will occur during physical exercise. So if you've got a higher bolt score, it's easier to sustain nasal breathing during exercise. And the second thing is the size of your nose. If you have a well-developed face with good anatomy of the nose, that you have decent, not a nose like mine, which is all over the place. <laughs> you know? So, you know, somebody with a well-proportioned face with a good nose and nasal airway, they can sustain pretty high workload breathing through the nose. Now, physiotherapists in a couple of small pilot studies um, showed that you can achieve a 90% work rate 
breathing through your nose versus through your mouth. And the ideal time, or the, sorry, the, not the ideal, but the time that you switch from nose to mouth breathing, it typically happens when you're breathing about 35 to 40 liters of air. So it's just because the air hunger gets a little bit too strong. Mm-hmm. But what I would say is give it a shot and continue nasal breathing, but more so improve your breathing patterns outside of your physical exercise and do some breath holds, you know, do some breath holds as well. Um, just to cause some adaptations, include improved buffering capacity, because then your recovery is going to be better because there's going to be less lactic acid. Mm-hmm. So I think the breath toes are an interesting one, you know, because athletes, they'll often do sprinting and, you know, they'll do high intensity workouts to stimulate anaerobic glycolysis, but you can do a breath hold in your sitting room. Jogging, you don't even have to jog. You can walk around holding your breath. And that too, that will actually produce a stronger effect in terms of lowering the blood oxygen saturation and increasing carbon dioxide, disturbing the blood acid base balance and increasing the buffering capacity, probably inside the muscle compartment, which in turn then delays lactic acid and fatigue. Mm-hmm. Something I found when I would coach my athletes is prescribing them 20 minutes of work. So whether it's a mixed modal type session or a CrossFit type workout, but I'll require them to breathe through their nose. And Patrick, what that does is it just kind of auto regulates them to find a sustainable pace. Sometimes the biggest struggle for people at my gym or just in CrossFit in general is finding a sustainable pace for a long period of time. They want to come out too hot, they lose their air, and then they're not able to sustain. And so something that I've been really flirting with is trying the idea of, you know, what making you nose breathe. Maybe it's, if it's for a 20 minute workout, if it's not 20 minutes, the first 10 minutes, I want you to breathe through your nose. And then that kind of gets them into a rhythm or pace that they can hold for a long period of time. Just a little bit of a side note to try to help people become a little bit more sustainable in their fitness when it comes to, you know, longer bouts. But I want to also yeah, talk about good idea. Yeah. Just add something there. Absolutely. Like, it's not that every athlete is going to have dysfunctional breathing patterns, but if you have athletes or individuals coming in, if they have any tendency towards perfectionist ten- tendencies, uh, they can exhibit poor breathing because they set high demands on themselves. People with anxiety and panic disorder, 75 to 80% of the population have dysfunctional breathing. People with wow. asthma or even childhood asthma, it's about 30%. I think it's more, but the literature shows it's 30%. Females during the monthly cycle, days 10 to days 22, there's an increase in progesterone, which is a respiratory stimulant. So breathing naturally becomes harder and faster. Carbon dioxide levels drop. In actual fact, a female shouldn't do high intensity exercise between days 10 and 22 of the monthly cycle or mid luteal phase. When their breathing is at its worst, they shouldn't be pushing the body. I don't think that. I don't think so. Now, this has been known since 1905 that women's breathing is different to men's breathing. And of course, has hardly got any attention because most research is done by men. And even when research is done on females, they they fail to take into consideration the monthly cycle. Mm. But how on earth this one has been missed, I have no idea. So there's a time for a female to train harder, but then there's a time to step off the the gas a bit. Um, And to go with that, and just your breathing can be a good, you know, it can be a good monitor of the intensity of your exercise if you allow nasal breathing to determine just how hard and fast you go. Right. And if the female, because I don't know how many females go to your gym, but maybe I assume it's 50%. Mm-hmm. So if a female knows, notices that her bolt score, which I'll just explain how to measure it, if the bolt score is dropping um, in the latter phase of the monthly cycle, it shows that her respiration has got a little bit faster and harder due to changes in hormones. 
And this can reduce pain thresholds, increase pain perception. It can cause increased breathlessness, increased wow. fatigue, panic, and anxiety. So, yeah, we're lucky. Men don't have to worry about those things. But in any event, the bowl score is as follows. You take, you're sitting down for a few minutes just with comfortable breathing. You take an umer breath in through your nose and out through your nose. You pinch your nose and hold. And you time it in seconds how long you can hold your breath for until you feel the first definite desire to breathe. And then you let go. You breathe in through your nose. Your breath should be fairly normal. So it's not a length of the maximum breath total time. It's just kind of how long does it take for your brain to react to the fact that you've stopped breathing? Mm -hmm. My coach has had me do this. Uh, we've been doing it every Tuesday morning uh, for the last few months. And it's been interesting to see over time how I've increased. So my first time doing it, it was a measly 16 seconds. Uh, and basically what we would do is five and correct me if this is not the way of doing it, but before training on Tuesdays, I would do five bouts or five efforts of it uh, with, I think it was one minute in between. And it, what was interesting mm, to me, fine. Yeah. What was interesting to me, Patrick, was during those five bouts, the first one or yeah, the first one was always my worst one. And then my fifth one was always my best one. Why, why do you think that is that I got better not only over long periods of time, but even in the, the 20 minutes? Why did I get better from first to fifth? Yeah, there shouldn't be really any explanation because if you're just measuring your bowl score, you're not holding your breath beyond the first definite desire to breathe. Um, you could measure five times. We typically do it once or maybe we, we do it two times maybe. Um, but yeah, the bowl score is not any technique to help. It's By measuring the bowl score, it shouldn't necessarily improve the bowl score. Now, if you were doing maximum breath holds, it's a different story because if you do maximum breath holds, it causes the spleen to contra contract and the spleen contracts to release red blood cells into circulation. So our spleen is an organ underneath the left side of the diaphragm and it contains 8% of our red blood cells and the blood inside the spleen is pretty high quality. 80% is hematocrit. So it's very richly dense packed red blood cells, which are carrying oxygen. That's why you know, you spoke about doing the warm up for 10 minutes with nasal breathing. We do similar. So we start off. Normally, I'll get the guys blocking one nostril with the mm. mouth closed. So I have them breathing through one nostril. And it would be low intensity stuff. And then I get them hands on their sides to get lateral expansion, contraction of the lower ribs. And that's, a, of course, just to help with functional breathing and functional movement. And then I do a couple of easy breath holds and five or six, five done strong breath holes to stress the body. So we want to, we want to use the warm up as a means of relaxing the body, but stressing the body, mm. relaxing the mind, stressing the mind and for flow states as well for athletes. But yeah, coming back to it, if you were doing maximum breath holes, you'll often find then that the fifth breath hold can be longer than the first or second. And the reason being is because your spleen is dumping red blood cells into circulation which in turn is going to influence the length of time that you hold your breath for. Um, and I suppose as you hold your breath as well, it's helping to open up the airways. And if you have narrowing of the airways, it affects your breath hold time. Mm -hmm. So somebody would ask me if their chest is feeling a bit tighter, you know, they're feeling that their breathing isn't quite what it should be. That, that there seems to be some feedback from the lungs to the brain and that will reduce breath hold time. So there's a few things. There's a few things that are influencing breath hold time. It's also a good measurement of stress. You know, if you have a person under a fair degree of stress, typically their breath hold time will reduce.
Yep. I rem- I can say off offhand that I remember times that I was stressful. My bolt score was much lower than it had been in the past. But Patrick, could we could you uh, paint a picture between what a breath hold test look like, what that data should look like? And then what is the bolt score? What, how are those two different? And could you just walk us through what they look like? So the bolt score versus the maximum breathlessness test, is it? Yes. So your bolt score is you're sitting down for about three, four, five minutes with normal breathing. As I said earlier, you're taking a normal breath in and out through your nose, you're pinching your nose, you're holding your breath, and you're timing it in seconds until you feel the first definite desire to breathe. And then you let go, you breathe in through your nose. So the bowl score is not influenced by willpower or determination. It's a physiological reaction of the body to the fact that you've stopped breathing. The, the maximum breathlessness test is, is a different story. The maximum breathlessness test is measuring your upper limit of tolerance of breathlessness. And it also provides a bit of feedback on willpower because it's influenced by willpower. So this is where you take a normal breath in and out through your nose, you pinch your nose and hold, and you start walking while holding your breath. And you count the number of paces that you can, you can walk while holding your breath until a maximum. And at the end, you should be able to recover within about two breaths. So typically, if your bolt score is 10 seconds, your maximum breathlessness test is between 20 to 40 paces. If your bowl score is 20 seconds, the maximum breathlessness test is between 40 to 60 paces. If your bowl score is 30 seconds, your MBT is between 60 to 80 paces. And if your bowl score is 40 seconds, you should be able to achieve 80 paces to 100 paces. Now, you can have somebody with tremendous willpower. They might have a bowl score of 10 seconds, but then they do the maximum breathlessness test and they hold, they hold their breath until they're about to pass out. That's not necessarily, see, this is the problem with the MBT that, you know, willpower is going to influence the, the score. Mm-hmm. So bolts, just to clarify, bolt score is when we're exhaling and breathing all the way out, we're, we're empty in our lungs, then we're p- holding our nose. Is that I know correct? A normal breath out, a normal breath out, just yep. down to functional residual capacity. Uh, if, you, if you empty the lungs, well, you won't fully empty the lungs, but if you empty, you breathe out as much air as you can, your bolt score is going to be reduced. So you have a normal breath in through your nose and a normal breath out through your nose, and then you hold your breath. So just at the, the end of a normal exhalation. Mm-hmm. And for that bolt score, Patrick, what is what should people, if they're doing this right now, hopefully not while they're driving, but as they're getting to the gym, what is a score that you're looking for for, let's just say, a 40-year-old a person who uh, is a fitness enthusiast? What type of score are you looking for? Well, you'd be looking for a minimum score of 25 seconds. And a, go- a good goal now is 40 seconds. Not everybody achieves 40 seconds. The people who tend to achieve 40 seconds are people in uh, special weapons and tactics. So we've seen those guys. um, We've seen military. We've seen elite athletes, professional athletes. They can achieve, they can build up their bowl score. For the person who's sedentary or office-based and under a bit of stress, they don't always get a bowl score of 40 seconds. But you know what? Every time your bowl score increases by five seconds, it's something beneficial and your breathing is getting lighter. Your sleep will be better. Your physical performance with, with during exercise is going to be better. So I would say, you know, even if your bowl score is, if it's 10 seconds today, I can tell you this has been holding you back. And even if it's less than 25 seconds, it's holding you back. So get it up to a minimum of 25 seconds. Yeah, I was mind blown when my, mine was 17 seconds. And I, I also thought too, Patrick, a lot of it could be psychological. And I think I say that I say that because there are people that 
you know, growing up when you were swimming that could not hold their breath underwater is very uncomfortable. It kind of, it got to their mind before they got to their physiology. How much does the psychological part play a role when it comes to the breath or the bolt score, not the breath hole, but being that, that idea of being out of breath and you're almost panicking before you need to. Well, part of it is psychological, but part of it is physiological. So say, for example, somebody in a swimming pool and they can't keep the head underwater, it's because their, their tolerance to carbon dioxide is pretty strong. The ventilatory response to carbon dioxide is pretty strong. And if you have a strong response to the buildup of carbon dioxide, your breathing is going to be hard and fast because you want to resume breathing to get rid of the gas. Now, by going for a jog with your mouth closed, by practicing breathing light during rest, and by doing breath holds, by keeping the mouth closed during sleep, you have to reduce the ventilatory response to carbon dioxide. And as a result, then you're able to tolerate a buildup of CO2 in the blood and you can stay underwater for longer. Mm-hmm. Now, another factor is psychological is dependent on the individual. As I said, 70, <clears throat> 75% of people with panic disorder and anxiety, they can have a very strong reaction. Now, they can have a very a kind of a fear response to the buildup of carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm. And it's because... Every time that they've had anxiety or panic disorder, it's, it was often accompanied by these extreme feelings of air hunger. And they have associated these extreme feelings of air hunger that they are going to die. You know, we feel air hunger. Yeah, we, we think it's pretty, it's pretty tough, like it's uncomfortable. But for them, it's on a totally different level. Now, it doesn't mean that they shouldn't do the breath holds. They should, but they should do them very gently. So if somebody comes in to me with a tendency towards panic disorder, I'll gently dose them the air hunger and I'll build it up over a period of time. And the reason I do this is because I've made plenty of mistakes. I've had people coming in with chronic fatigue syndrome. And I say, great, I give them a load of exercises and the next day they're absolutely floored and they won't come back to me. People with panic disorder, I remember 10 years ago, was a lot of people coming in with panic and anxiety. Great. I was having them do reduced breathing. I was making them feel suffocated. They were going quite with fear. And instead of telling them to take a break, I'd be telling them, it's good for you. Keep doing it. So here's the thing about the breath. You learn from your mistakes. I learned. Now, with our instructors, of course, I'm able to pass on this information. I didn't have it, unfortunately. Um, And for the poor devils that I was teaching the, the wrong way, you know, it didn't help them much either, unfortunately, but that's why breathing, we have to give it the credence that it deserves. You know, breathing exercise should be tailored to the individual, uh, just as a training intensity should be mm-hmm. tailored. Mm-hmm. You know, there's times to push yourself harder, but there's times to recover. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and one thing I suppose about the breath is that you can get that better balance over time. Now, Breath holds can be a pretty good way of helping to deal with stress as well. Because if, if, say, for example, somebody comes in with a tendency towards anxiety and if they have a strong reaction to the feeling of air hunger, I'll give them easy breath holds and get them comfortable with that. And then after a couple of days, we'll, we'll increase the breath hold and see how did they respond. Because we're always trying to get a point whereby we, we can challenge the person, but it doesn't tip them over. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to tip anybody over. And we then can desensitize their reaction to the feeling of air hunger. But also by exposing the body to the feeling of suffocation, they have to relax into it. And now they are training the brain to be able to cope with an uncomfortable situation. Sure. Because life is going to throw a few curveballs. That's the way it is, you know. 
And, you know, how do we deal with it? And we should be able to deal with uncomfortable situations and we can use the breathing to help with that. Mm-hmm. Now, physiologically, you're much better state when your breathing is functional, when a situation arises. Mm-hmm. If you think of somebody, two people, we say person A, and I say person A was like me 25 years ago. They were a mouth breather. They were a fast breather, upper chest breather with lousy sleep, poor concentration, racing mind. And you have person B who's calm, focused and collected. Good breathing patterns, good sleep and good energy and an ability to focus and concentrate. If a situation presents itself, who are you going to get to sort it out? Are you going to give it to the mouth breather with the fast and upper chest breathing? Or are you going to give it to the person who's got good concentration, good energy levels and able to stay focused? And that's what it's about. You know, I improved my resilience, but I didn't learn it in school. In actual fact, in school, it was an absolute total, you know, disaster. You're sending children and teenagers in there to focus and concentrate and not teaching them how. And 25 to 50 percent of kids have dysfunctional breathing patterns. Um, 15 percent have poor sleep, this mm-hmm. sleep disorder breathing. And children, young children with sleep disorder breathing, if it's untreated by age five, they 40 percent increased risk of special education needs by age eight. Oh, my goodness. And there's. There's 3 million kids in the United States falling into this bracket, Mm. you know, and nobody's talking about it, DJ. This isn't just about breathing for performance. This is about breathing for any child who wants to reach their full potential. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I was proofing a book this morning on focus and concentration because I think the education system has really let us down with this one, you know society demands that we can concentrate society demands that you can hold your attention on one thing and Mm -hmm. that you can hold your attention on one thing for a period of time. And that's what determines success. You know, whether it's in CrossFit, whether it's in the corporate world, whether it's in the family life, it doesn't matter if your mind is all over the place, you are not happy full stop. So changing breathing patterns, I'm using it for say, for example, achieving deep sleep and functional breathing and then bringing in mind and body awareness mm-hmm. and using that then to improve focus and concentration. And I, like if I was to do my exams now, I'm nearly 50 years of age. I guarantee you I would have a lot less studying than I did when I was 16, 17 and 18. And it shouldn't be that way. Teachers are demanding that these children can achieve good grades, but nobody is teaching them how to hold their attention on, on the, the curriculum. It's mm-hmm. crazy stuff. That's so fascinating. And I want to get into that, but before we do, I just want to button up the, the conversation of the bolt score versus the, the breath hold. So can we just finish on when you, the breath hold and the upper tolerance that we're doing the paces. So for the people mm. that want to test that out, can you talk through that test real quick? Yeah. Don't do this now if you're pregnant or if you have high anxiety or panic disorder, don't push yourself because the air hunger, remember I said that I put people into panic attacks. So you don't want to do, do that for yourself. Um, the MBT is as follows. Take a normal breath in through your nose and out through your nose, pinch your nose and hold and start walking as you hold your breath and count the number of places that you can hold your breath for until a maximum. But you should be able to recover within a couple of breaths. So, you know, it's not until the point that you go blue. And if your legs are going jelly, it can be natural enough that your legs go jelly, but you shouldn't have to feel that you have to pee afterwards because then you've pushed it too far. So, you know, listen to your body. It's the best thing. Mm-hmm. And what are, what are the paces that we're looking for there? So we know for the bolt score, we want a minimum of 25 seconds. Where does that put us on the, on the pacing for We'd the be looking for 660 paces plus. 
60. <laughs> yeah. 60 paces plus. Yeah. Oh, I'm embarrassed, man. I, when I was doing this, I was, uh, it was a good day if I got to 40. You know, but see, this is upper limit of tolerance. So for a sprinter, though, this is really where they need to build up. Like if an MMA fighter, I'd be working on both their bolt score and also working on their MBT, their maximum breathlessness test. Mm-hmm. Um, because that tolerance of air hunger, and it's a fair old push for willpower, but, it, you know, it's trainable. So that's the thing. Mm-hmm. Even though researchers will say that in order to reduce the ventilatory response to carbon dioxide, you do it with severe physical training. No, no, no. You don't need severe physical training. All you need to do is tap into the breath and you can change your response to CO2. Sure. And a mistake, I, I don't want to make this about me, all about me here, but a mistake I think I might have been making was that I got myself all the way out of breathlessness. So I had no air in my lungs. No, no, and, and, not and, too much. And then, I, and then I would plug my nose and walk. So yeah. maybe, maybe for the people that might be making the same mistake as me, or maybe you're just talking to me, uh, what, what's, what should we be doing instead just of Just a normal breath in. A normal breath out through your nose, just okay. down to functional residual capacity. Um, so yeah, it should be just as you breathe normally. Exhale, have a normal exhalation, hold your breath and walk. And you okay. can walk fairly fast as well. Okay. Good to know. I will, I will not make that mistake again after hearing this. So, so somebody listening, let's say they get, they said, Patrick, I just did my bolt score and I got uh, 15 seconds and then I walked, you know, 25 paces. So basically we're very much under where we need to be. What are some things I know it's supposed to be individualized, but what are some things I can do to get better at these two tests? Is it just as simple as doing the tests more often? Maybe it's no, do- God, no, 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 no. Test is a test. You don't change the test by doing the test. Um, you'd have to keep your mouth closed and breathe through your nose during sleep. And we wear tape across the lips. I've done that for 25 years. And that ensures, you know, nasal breathing during sleep. You're less likely to have snoring and obstructive sleep apnea. Practice slowing down your breathing to create air hunger. You know, sit down, pay attention to your breath, slow down the speed of the airflow coming into your nose and allow really relaxed and a slow and gentle exhalation and do it to the point that you feel that you're not getting enough air. So you're focusing on the airflow coming into your nose. You're feeling the slightly colder air as it comes into the nose and you're slowing down the speed of the breath in almost that it's imperceptible. And then you're having a very relaxed and a slow, gentle breath out. So you're breathing less air. If you breathe less air for a few minutes, say for three or four minutes, that in turn, carbon dioxide is increasing in the blood during that time. And you know that carbon dioxide is increasing because it creates a feeling of air hunger. But the ironic thing here is that the air hunger can generate a bit of discomfort. But the body and mind, you're actually relaxing it for most people, unless it puts them into a, into a panic attack. But for most people, it actually relaxes body and mind. Because when carbon dioxide increases in the blood, it stimulates the vagus nerve. which is a vagotropic effect. Most people will notice that their hands get warmer. Most people will notice a sense of feeling drowsy. Mm. Uh, most people will notice they've increased watery saliva in the mouth. Mm. And the other thing about it is that when you breathe less air to the point of air hunger that's tolerable, your mind is more anchored onto the breath. So you're training your brain to hold its attention on one thing. And the, the benefit of that is then whatever you want to hold your attention upon, you can then transfer that skill to something else. Like people's minds are all over the shop. And I have to say, television doesn't help either. If you look right. at, and American television is worse than what we're, ours is bad enough, but yours is worse. Mm-hmm. If you look at the way television is done, that it's jumping from frame to frame, 
And it's, it's really is, it's training the brain to be so distracted. Mm -hmm. Social media is doing the same, you know, none of these things are helping. So how can you have a, a concentrated mind when you need it? If you're practicing distraction throughout the day. Mm -hmm. Do you have any data, Patrick, on how many breaths that we should be taking per minute? Just something I've been curious on about if, if we're over breathing, yeah, just during rest. Measure. Well, so you can't really change. You can't just focus on the breath. You know, if, if I give you a big a plate of food and you have it in front of front of you, and I've, if I give you a small spoon, DJ, and I say, eat that all up, DJ, 50 small spoons and you have it all at. Or if I give you a big spoon and I say, DJ, eat it all up, 25 big spoons and you have it all at. So we have to consider the food on the plate and that's the volume. And mm -hmm. what we want to do is we want to look at minute volume. How much air do you breathe per, per minute? The respiratory rate is the number of spoons, but the tidal volume is the size of the spoon. Mm. So if, for example, we're focusing solely on the number of spoons and not taking into consideration the size of the spoon, we're not getting the full picture. And this has been a problem that has happened. Psychotherapists, their students would come in, their students would have fast breathing, upper chest breathing, maybe breathing 20 breaths per minute. And I'm not honing in on psychotherapists, but it was just, it was written in, in a psychotherapy paper. And the psychotherapist would sit down to student and say to them, your breathing is just a bit too fast and that's going to cause agitation of the mind, which is fair enough. That's true. The psychotherapist would say, I want you to slow down your breathing from 20 breaths per minute down to 10 breaths per minute. We can do that by breathing in for three seconds and out for three seconds. But in the process, the student is taking these full big breaths in for three seconds yeah. and breathing out for three seconds. Right. And it ends up that they breathe more air right. coming out of the psychotherapist's office than they did going in. So in actual fact, more harm done than not. Interesting. So when you're looking at changing the respiratory rate, always take into consideration the tidal volume. If somebody is giving you a plate of food, take into consideration the, the number of spoons, but also the size of the spoon, because ultimately it's this, the food on the plate. That's the real picture. Mm -hmm. And with breathing, it's the volume of air that you breathe. So like coming back to your other question too, how do you get your bowl score up? Get your mouth closed during sleep, practicing breathing less air. Now, if somebody has really poor breathing patterns, I'd ask them to do it for 10 minutes by about four times a day. With air hunger, that they're slowing down the speed of their breathing. And you could breathe in, if you wanted to time it, you could breathe in for five seconds in or five seconds out or four seconds in or six seconds out, that would be a good cadence because it helps to stimulate the vagus nerve and achieve balance of the autonomic nervous system. But the main thing is get air hunger. So any person who comes into me, I need them to feel slightly suffocated during the exercises because then I know that I'm targeting the biochemistry. Now, during the exercise, you can be breathing shallow, and then we have other exercises to breathe deep. And when I talk about deep breathing, it just means lateral expansion and contraction of the lower ribs. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to take a big breath to breathe deep. In actual fact, you're breathing during rest. It should be totally silent. It should be in and out through the nose. It should be light. It should be slow. And it should be deep. So LSD is the best way to think of it. I like that. I, I wanted to ask too, what, what are your thoughts, Patrick, on somebody who, let, let's just talk about breathing before a workout, 
during a workout and after a workout, what are, how do they look different? Do they look different or what can we start to do before we go into the gym, before we stress our body? And then in the workout, something that we do a lot is things like four minutes on four minutes off, three minutes on three minutes off some intervals that are kind of that work to rest ratio. What can we do during the rest to get us ready for the next bout? And then at the end of the session, when the session's over, how can we do a better job cooling down and getting ready for the next day? If that makes sense, those three different sections. During warm up, we always do. We start off with light and intensity exercise, breathing in and out through the nose. We might block one nostril for a couple of minutes just to increase the air hunger. Then we get people to put their hands either side of their lower ribs. And as they're doing their light intensity movements, as they breathe in, they should be gently pushing their ribs outwards. So when they breathe in, they should feel the lower ribs moving out. And when they breathe out, they should feel the lower ribs moving in because lateral expansion and contraction of the lower ribs is a good gauge of the generation of intra-abdominal pressure, mm. which provides stabilization for the spine. After that, then, a few minutes, nasal breathing. Could be five, ten minutes during the warm-up. All warm-up done with breathing in and out through the nose. Then I have them do two easy breath holds. They take a normal breath in and out through the nose, hold their nose. And they continue their warm-up until they feel maybe a light air hunger, moderate air hunger even. And then they let go, resume breathing in and out through the nose. 30 seconds to 60 seconds later, we do another easy breath hold. And then about a minute later, we do a strong breath hold. And again, they take a normal breath in and out through the nose, pinch the nose. And as they're holding their breath, they increase the intensity of their movements. So the stronger the air hunger, the more intense they move. And then at the end, they let go and we get breathing under control, sometimes minimal breathing, sometimes not. And they repeat the five strong breath holds. So easy. So warm up goes as follows. You do light breathing in and out through the nose. You should feel increased air hunger. And then you do low breathing and slow breathing in and out through the nose. And then you do two easy breath holds and then five strong breath holds. And after about a minute or so, if you want to get rid of carbon dioxide, you could just take a breath in through your nose and breathe out through the mouth. But normally carbon dioxide will lower back to normal within about a minute or so. So during high intensity training, uh, it's very important that the person has a decent maximum breathlessness test. So even the breath holes that you're doing during your warm up will have to push that out anyway. And the reason that we have breath holes during the warm up is because it causes the spleen to contract. It helps open up the airways. It increases blood flow to the brain. So we're relaxing and stressing the body and mind during the warm up. So during high intensity, of course, you're going to be breathing out at some point when the intensity gets too much. But after the high intensity, in order to recover, if you've got three minutes of a rest or four minutes of a rest, it's always in the exhalation and the exhalation is slow. So if you think if you want to stress the body, breathe in fast and breathe out fast. And it's the exhalation that determines whether you are stressing the body or relaxing the body, not the inhalation. With the inhalation, the vagus nerves, nerve steps back. The exhalation is primarily under the control of the parasympathetic response. So we want to have a light and slow exhalation. So even if you feel gassed out, always try and slow down the speed of your exhalation. Mm. So you're pretty gassed out and you want to recover quickly. Put your hands either side of your lower ribs. Breathe low, but breathe slow. Mm. The reason being is because the greatest concentration of blood flow is in the lower lobes, not in the upper. So if you're breathing fast and shallow, you're wasting so much air into dead space. 
So breathe low and breathe slow, but on the exhalation, try and have a slower exhalation. You could take a faster inhalation and a slow exhalation. And it's the slow and exhalation that stimulates the vagus nerve for recovery. And then, and then so, sorry to cut you off, but that, the, so that's going to be, if you're coming off a, a hard bout there, that's probably going to be through the mouth for the first little yes. bit is the yeah, goal yeah. To, is the goal to get to nose breathing as fast as you can, Patrick, or yes. is it? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Now, of course, when you're coming off the bout, your mouth is open, you're feeling very breathless, but even breathing in through the mouth, you could breathe in through the mouth, breathe in fairly quickly. And then do purse lips. You're slowing down the exhalation. Mm. Anytime you slow down the exhalation, you bring the body into recovery. And also when you're breathing in and out through the mouth, try and breathe slow and low. So low and slow breathing is always better in terms of gas exchange. And uh, slow exhalation is always better in terms of recovery. Got it. Um, would it make any sense for somebody right after a, a bout to... Uh, force themselves to close their mouth to get to nose breathing, or is it is that not a good idea? Does that is that risk for injury of any sort? Is it better to just let your body go right into it? I've just seen that sometimes people go out on a, a super hard bout during the rest. It's like a training tool to cover their mouth right away to get to nose breathing. Is there any sense in that? Switching to nose breathing is always going to be beneficial, but you don't want to be pulling and pushing the air so intensely in in and out through the nose. Mm -hmm. You know. If the air hunger is so strong that you're absolutely taxed, you know, you don't want to be pulling the air in and out of the nose. All you will do is irritate the inside of the nose mm -hmm. and it could cause pain. Mm -hmm. So you do want to switch to nasal breathing pretty quickly, but switch when you feel a bit more comfortable with it. Okay. That's all. Yep. And then after the workout's over, so let's say it was a 20, 20 minute workout. I think something that I've been really trying to do with my athletes is just getting them better at cooling down. I know people are very busy and they got to go to the next thing in their schedule in their day, but tell me about the importance, Patrick, of 10 minutes cooling down, maybe going for a walk, breathing through your nose and letting that heart rate just kind of slowly come down rather than just bouncing to whatever you have next on your schedule. How do you guys You know, why not make it as a means of training the brain as well? You know, use your cool down period as, as, a, as a meditation. You're taking your attention out of your mind onto the breath you're focusing on your breathing. You're taking a short or soft inhalation. You're having a nice, relaxed and slow exhalation. Also use it, you could breathe and you can slow down the speed of the breath to breathe in for five seconds and out for five seconds. You know, so you're breathing in two, three, four, five, out, two, mm. three, four, five. Like recovery is really, really vital. Too many people that we have spoken with over the years and they pushed their body so hard that they had burnout and exhaustion. Mm -hmm. There's only so much we can cope, you know, like granted, we do want to stress the body, but we want to stress the body with controlled doses of stress and recovery is always vital, but also, you know, multitask with this one, even though, of course, I'm not a fan of multitasking, but use your recovery as a means of not only training the breath, but also training the brain. And getting that balance, and that's a measure of resilience. And your heart rate variability, which is an objective measurement of vagal tone, will increase. And you want to optimize your HRV. You know, you don't want to be so stuck in a stress response. You don't want to be stuck in parasympathetic response, but you want to have balance. 
Uh, we're getting closer on time and I'm sure we could do a whole podcast on this last question, but I'm just curious on what, what, what are your thoughts on, you talked a little bit earlier about how we can do be better at coaching of kids when it comes to being more optimal breathers. What are, what are some things that you think that we could do or listeners could do, whether we have teachers, coaches, people that work with kids, what, what can we do a better job at to help them? So when they do get to our age that they're not struggling with, uh, uh, deficient breathing mechanics. Well, it's like this, you know, it's a loaded question. I'm sorry for the 50, loaded question. <laughs> 25 to 50% of kids that have dysfunctional breathing patterns, these kids are not going to reach their full potential. Pediatric doctors have, have, you know, they've dropped the ball with this one. Dental industry has dropped the ball with it. Most healthcare professionals have dropped the ball with it. And I've absolutely no problem saying that because that's a fact. Mm-hmm. There are some wonderful dentists and medical doctors and ear, nose and throat doctors and speech and language pathologists and myofunctional therapists who got it, who get it, and they work, but the industry is resisting it. Look at the literature. You know, if you see a kid in the classroom with their mouth hanging open, these kids, and of course, it's going to be varying. It's not that every child, but more often than not, the children with the mouth breathing and the stuffy nose, they have a sleep problem. And if they have a sleep problem, they have 10 times the risk of learning difficulties. And now we're putting these kids into school. They are exhausted. And we're asking these kids to pay attention, to sit down there for six hours and pay attention to what your teacher is saying. And you're in a state of exhaustion. Of course, the kid is going to get frustrated. Mm -hmm. You know, such a simple thing. Human beings, we're supposed to be intelligent. And the guys who are armed with medical degrees are supposed to be more intelligent than the rest of us. How on earth did they miss this one? Mm. You know, so any child that you see with the mouth open, really encourage that child to unblock the nose. All of the exercise for children are free. We have put them up there several years ago. I think 10 years ago. Now we've put more recent one ups and more recent exercise up in the last two years. But if you go to YouTube and put in Patrick McKeown children's breathing exercise, every single breathing exercise for a kid is free. It's on YouTube. And there's exercises to help to teach the to child the importance of nose breathing, the steps exercise, slow breathing, light breathing, running with the mouth closed. The entire program that we teach kids is already there. So I would encourage, you know, even put the kids in front of us and just watch them and let them do the exercise. But if you have a child with their mouth open, pay attention to your child's breathing during sleep. You should never hear your child breathing during sleep. Your child shouldn't be snoring. And definitely your child shouldn't be stopping breathing. So if you hear snoring and then if you hear the child stopping breathing, that could indicate that the child is sleep apnea and that can really hold back the child's growth. But it can cause, and I don't want to alarm anybody, but it can, it can cause brain damage. And the, the brain is developing during the formative years. And if that child is not getting deep sleep, the child is not going to develop the way they should develop. Awesome. Patrick, that was fun, man. You're, you're full of wisdom and I, I really appreciate you taking the time. I have read the book Oxygen Advantage. I've also taped, I got your tape that I tape every night around my mouth when I go to sleep. Uh, so I, I'm out here saying that you guys need to give this a shot. But for people that uh, don't know you or want to get involved by some of your stuff, where can I point them as we kind of close this conversation down? Yeah, like the Oxygen Advantage is great for sports. I have a new book out called The Breathing Cure as well. So that's available from our website. It's published in the United States in August and I have a new book then on Focus that will be coming out in the next few months. Oh, very cool. 
Um, so we have courses. Go to oxygenadvantage.com. You can check us out on social media and uh, YouTube, as I said, videos for kids and things like that. So, yeah. Awesome. Patrick, I appreciate taking the time. It was awesome to talk to the guy when it comes to all things breathwork. So thank you so much. And uh, guys, if you enjoyed the show, make sure to give us a comment, rating, review. We'd love to hear what you took out of this conversation. We'll see you next week for another episode on the MyFit Podcast. Podcast.